Today's TribCast is sponsored by... Over the Ledge is the number one political comedy show based solely on the Texas legislature in podcast and live theater format. Learn more at OverTheLedge.com. And WGU Texas. Upskill, reskill. Earn a four-year degree faster. Accelerated, accredited online degrees in business, IT, healthcare, and education. Visit texas.wgu.edu slash admissions. And welcome to the June 17th edition of the Texas Tribune TribCast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by justice and politics reporter Emma Plata. Hi there. Hello. Women's health reporter Shannon Najmabadi. Hello. Hi. And managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hey. Whose wife, <laughs> I'm told, has started listening to the TripCast at home to bother him. <laughs> so shout out to her. She's the OG when it comes to making fun of Matthew, and we appreciate it. <laughs> it's a little message for her for when she listens eventually. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got um, a bit of a grim one ahead of us, so let's just dive in. Uh, we spent the last two TripCasts largely talking about the aftermath of George Floyd's death. But in that time, we have seen some troubling figures and record high numbers when it comes to the coronavirus's hold on the state. Yesterday, we heard kind of the most recent ones and got some more hospitalization numbers this morning. Shannon, do you want to lay out some of the latest on this for us? Mm -hmm. So the coronavirus is still happening, as Governor Abbott reminded us yesterday in his press conference. We've actually seen record high hospitalization numbers for nine of the last 10 days, I believe. So um, these are the number of people confirmed to have COVID-19 in Texas hospitals. So there could be people suspected to have COVID that aren't included, but we're now at 2,800 people um, hospitalized with COVID. Um, You know, it's just been ticking up day to day. And this um, really precedes the numbers that we've been seeing before about, you know, 10 days ago. So by way of background, this hospitalization metric can be kind of a lagging indicator. You know, epidemiologists say there's like a 9-16 day window in which, uh, you know, people could be exposed to the virus and then that, uh, those numbers aren't reflected in case data. And then another five to seven days maybe to see uh, people get hospitalized. Um, obviously, some people don't find out they have the virus until they are hospitalized. But um, the hospitalization number is important. It's one that Abbott has said he's watching. I think yesterday he said he has you know, laser focus on um, hospital capacity. It's important because, one, it kind of indicates the severity of the disease, you know, how many people, once they are infected, end up going to the hospital and having to take up, uh, you know, sometimes scarce medical resources. And then also it's related to capacity, which I had mentioned Abbott is concerned about, which is, you know, how many hospital beds, ICUs, ventilators do we have um, available to treat another potential surge? So, um, Abbott, maybe responding to some of the record high numbers he's been seeing, called a press conference yesterday about hospital capacity. And he said that while he is laser focused on the capacity number, we do still have ample capacity. Um, I think he might have said abundant yesterday. So um, I guess that's kind of the overview of where we are at with the hospitalization numbers and Abbott's stance. Um, He hasn't really indicated anything about potentially curtailing the state's reopening that has been going on during this time. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, it seems like he yeah. is not thinking about reopening anything and, and has sort of suggested at that during these press conferences. Yeah, I mean, the one measure he's talked about really implementing is going back to a ban on elective procedures in hospitals, you know, in order to kind of make sure there's even more hospital capacity um, available for um, for people who get sick. I mean, I think this is both alarming and not particularly surprising, right? I mean, you know, I think even if you gave Abbott, he's not being completely outspoken about this, but if you gave him kind of truth serum, I think he would say that, you know, he knew if this kind of continued reopening of the economy of the state would lead to more cases and things like this. And, you know, uh, that being said, you know, this is happening. And, you know, each each kind of statistic of someone being in the hospital is, is another person whose, you know, life might be at risk or might be in danger. Um, and it's creating, as you could possibly predict, every time we see these numbers go up, it's creating a lot of concern about, you know, whether this is the right strategy um, whether the state should be doing more, whether Abbott should be kind of opening things up and allowing you know local officials to take more dramatic steps in their state. Right now, Abbott is, you know, like we've said, kind of sticking to the plan. Um, but I think these this continued rise in numbers will, I think, kind of continue to test, you know, how palatable people in Texas find this plan. Yeah, I mean, I think the the press conference did seem sort of specifically tailored to talk about this, you know, that quote, abundant hospital capacity. And, you know, I, I think we can all agree that our hospitals not being overrun the way those in New York were is a good thing. And a big part about flattening the curve was to maintain hospital capacity. But yeah, I mean, I think we're still talking about people getting sick and thousands of them being hospitalized and some of those people then dying. And, you know, I, I can't imagine that knowing that there's a hospital bed for you if you need it is all that kind of reassuring or helpful to the janitor or the restaurant server that, you know, has to take public transportation to get to their job and possibly sharing a bus with someone who isn't wearing a mask. And I think this this gets to align the, from Emma's reporting yesterday on the death toll and how that's crossed the 2000 mark, that in, in some ways this is this has often been not how much death can we bear, but how much can our healthcare system manage? And sorry, Emma, I'm just stealing your words there full, full on. But I think it really sort of gets to the heart of, of kind of this like effort to balance some of this that we're seeing. Yeah, I think the tone is clear, right? The focus is clear. What we're talking about is what is kind of the capacity of our system. We are no longer at a place where the stated goal of state leaders is complete eradication, complete stopping of this spread. That I, I think they recognize that's not a realistic goal. Um, and so the question is, how slowly, how carefully can we continue to reopen te Texas businesses without reaching a crisis point in our hospitals? Um, and that's obviously, that is a really important metric as we talked about. But I think for folks who have lost loved ones who are in the hospitals themselves, who are worried about this, the line you kind of always hear from family members who've lost loved ones is, he wasn't just a statistic, you know, that was my husband, that was my son, this was my grandfather. Like, the idea that um, deaths are kind of something we have to manage as opposed to something we have to bear. And it's, it's almost something we don't really hear state officials talking about anymore. Well, I mean, it's definitely not a political winner, right? Like, you don't want to kind of say, like, well, it's inevitable that people are going to get sick, 
and die. Like, so we might as well like open up the economy as much as we can. You know, I mean, I think there is, there could be kind of a philosophy around this, you know, basically being like when you're flattening the curve, you know, if in the absence of a cure or a treat, you know, a, a vaccine or a treatment, you're not necessarily preventing people from getting sick, you're delaying it or you're slowing it down. And without like the kind of bright light at the end of the tunnel, we have no idea how far we are from a vaccine. We have no idea, you know, you know, there's been some promising news about treatments lately, although, um, you know, those treatments, you know, are only for the most, the sickest people out there. Um, you know, the, the, the question kind of becomes like, you know, what, what are we willing to manage? And, and one thing that's different here about Texas right now compared to, you know, Italy or New York in the past is that, you know, there is, there are a lot of ventilators, for instance, um, and, and so there's, there might be some of the less of the rationing and kind of things when we, if, and when we do see this rush of hospital patients, that at least makes it a little bit less grim than what, you know, what other communities, other areas across the world have experienced when they've had their kind of rush of patients. I will say that, you know, obviously people don't really want to talk about death, like Emma mentioned, and I was thinking back to early in the pandemic, um, like how different the tone was when they were just, you know, a handful of cases and every case seemed like so major. But now the way it has been framed to me and maybe more of like a positive light is that um, they're trying to balance this, this act where you don't want hospitals overrun, you don't really want people to die, but you also want to minimize some of these negative, you know, repercussions from keeping people home all the time. Like one thing that people bring up to me is the mental health effects of people being home. And it's just like, you know, they feel like they're threading this needle and hopefully every time the eye of the needle gets a little bit bigger, so it's a little bit easier to walk that line. Um, so, yeah. Should we mention the under 30s? Abbott blaming them for the <laughs> most recent search? <laughs> you <laughs> under 30 people defend yourselves. <laughs> only under 30 people go to bars and go eat at restaurants, which, you know... That I'm sounds about... Ac- as, a, as a 36-year-old, that sounds accurate to me, actually. Okay, <laughs> Oh wait, hold on. I'm 35. Just <laughs> this year has just aged you beyond. Yeah, that, I feel like I'm 50. <laughs> no, so we, so in part, the governor this week, uh, you know, sort of, kind of, I mean, he sought to cast some of the blame on some of these increases on younger people. I think probably looking at the data and the balance of cases that trend younger. But I seem to remember, at least in some places, that that those numbers were like that before as well, where you you were seeing younger people be overrepresented in the the case tracker. And that was what was leading to some of those concerns about, you know, you might be asymptomatic, you have to be careful when you're going out, you're the care you could be the carriers to someone who's older and higher risk. Am I wrong in remembering that though? I think that some of the trends have changed, especially in the early days. I mean, some of the hotspots where it spread the fastest were the nursing homes and assisted living centers, places like that. I had a conversation with the um, biostatician yesterday who was basically saying that we're at a point in this where it's, it's really about behavior. And she was kind of speculating, looking at some of the numbers she's seeing in certain counties in the state where they are reporting kind of larger shares of positive cases among the, I think it's 18 to 44 demographic, the uh, loathsome 20-somethings, 
that those are the people who are likely to be healthier. They're likelier to feel invincible. She said something like, don't you remember when you were 18 and you know, you thought nothing bad could happen to you. Um, people who are less afraid are maybe acting more recklessly. And I think that's one of the theories as to why we're seeing this kind of demographic shift. Yeah, that is true. I think if you do see photos of people at, you know, Barden Springs or like the free part of it, I think has been pretty crowded and they do tend to trend younger. But, but I just, I do think that like, if you are going to blame an individual group of people based on case numbers, okay, it's rooted in numbers. But at the end of the day, a lot of this is because of congregations, right? Like people are going into bars and restaurants that were reopened by the governor. Yeah, it, it, he, we shouldn't pretend that Governor Abbott doesn't have agency in, in all this. I mean, he could he could close the bars. He could re- allow local officials to require people to wear masks in public, you know. And right now he's taken a lot of those tools away and is basically kind of putting his trust in them while also kind of scolding them for not, you know, uh, for betraying that trust. Yeah, well, so let's let's get to some of the kind of calls for more local control on this. This week in particular, we've seen kind of more open calls from local leaders basically asking the governor to give them back the authority to set local rules, particularly when it comes to mandating the use of masks. There was a letter yesterday. It was mayors of nine of Texas's biggest cities basically looking to get out from under this executive order from Abbott that banned them from imposing any sort of fines or criminal penalties if people weren't wearing masks. I think this morning, the Bear County judge, Nelson Wolf, is now mandating that businesses have to require both employees and customers to wear masks. Abbott, meanwhile, has really talked about this in terms of like personal responsibility. So, you know, I wonder if this is just sort of the latest iteration of what has become kind of the politicization of mask use. I I can't actually see Abbott buckling on this one, even though public health experts are saying, you know, extensive mask use does give us a chance to avoid the worst here. And the latest episode of kind of state versus local control fights, I mean, how often are we talking about, you know, whether the issue is property taxes or school funding or whatever it is, it seems to be kind of the perennial issue. We, I think we kind of see, I think it's fair to call it confusing messaging from the governor on this. On the one hand, he's calling on individuals to wear masks. On the other hand, his administration has made clear that local officials can't require wearing masks. Yesterday at a press conference, he seemed sort of critical of Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins for he said uh, not lifting a finger to kind of require people to take these sort of more careful personal um, precautionary measures. Yeah. At the he, same time, he called time, him two-faced. Two-faced, yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, last month we had a letter go out from the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton to local officials, including Clay Jenkins, saying basically, if you don't loosen your local rules, we're going to sue you. We, the state of Texas. So. As a local official, you're kind of having to balance these conflicting ideas, and you can see how that's sort of a difficult position. All right. Well, before we move on to our next topic, we've got to go to two more sponsors. Today's TribCast is sponsored by the University of Arizona. See why wonder makes us who we are at wonder.arizona.edu. And Every Texan, the Center for Public Policy Priorities, has changed its name to Every Texan, 
their long-standing mission remains the same. Learn more at everytexan.org. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to talk about this week was, you know, years after a federal judge ordered the state to fix its child welfare system, we got a deeply alarming and really atrocious report from the federal monitors overseeing that system. Emma, you read through the 363-page report. Tell us a little bit more about what these monitors detailed. So just to start, this is not a new issue at all in Texas. In 2011, um, a group of law firms sued the state over treatment of children in its care as part of this massive class action lawsuit. In 2015, a federal judge, Janice Jack, ruled for the first time that Texas, in fact, was treating foster children so poorly that it was violating their constitutional rights. And here we are in 2020, and um, this report detailed by two kind of independent experts who were appointed by the court, they don't work for the state, they don't work for the attorneys representing the children, found that um, not only have a lot of those things not improved, but that the state is continuing to violate these kind of years old order that orders that the federal judge has given. So they took it a look at about a 10 month span from the end of April of calendar 2019 to, I'm sorry, from August 2019 through the end of April 2020. And they document the deaths of 11 children in the state's care. Um, I wrote about one of them. It was a three year old. There were at least four reports to the state welfare agency. Um, people had seen bruises, people had seen injuries. Um, there were questions about whether the foster parents were abusing various substances. And one of the allegations was kind of downgraded into a lower priority. And ultimately the child was found dead one morning in April, uh, just two months shy of his fourth birthday. So I think that was just one of the kind of most troubling examples of a system they described as completely disjointed and dysfunctional where um, reports are downgraded, they're slow walked and the result is harm to children. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about how we got here, because like you said, this is not a new fight, right? This started years ago, but it was pretty astonishing to read this report so many years into just the legal portion of this, right? Like, obviously, there were things happening that prompted even the lawsuit to begin with. And I remember a couple years ago when when Judge Jack first ruled that the state was violating the constitutional rights of, of foster children, given the unreasonable risk it was putting them in, the, the top line from that ruling was that children often aged out of the system more damaged than when they entered. And yet here we are five years later from just that ruling with this sort of report. And I, I don't think you can look at it and not question what, if anything, has the state done in this time? And can we actually think about it working in any capacity if the result is the deaths of multiple children just in a 10-month span? So the state has said that it is following um, at least many of the remedial orders that the judge put in place uh, more than a year ago. The independent experts found that the state was not following many of those orders. There was also a major push in the 2017 legislative session, so kind of in the middle of this ongoing litigation, Lawmakers put an extra $500 million into the system. They uh, hired more caseworkers to kind of lower the caseloads on individuals. They started paying them more, thinking that they would get higher quality people and kind of boost morale. And we've seen these problems persist. So uh, the question is, what happens now? The attorney I spoke with representing the children said, um, 
you know, basically Texas has lost this case and whether they do it voluntarily or whether they're forced to do it by court order, they are eventually going to have to build a system that is safe for these children. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sorry, Matthew. No, I was wondering what you thought of um, Abbott's comment yesterday at the press conference. I don't know if you you heard it. He basically said that, um, you know, he wanted to talk about coronavirus, but he just said, I haven't read today's report. I can't determine how these monitors who are being paid themselves for the product they issued today, I can't tell or know what they're saying, how we are coming up short. But one goal that we do have a state um, is basically to make sure that vulnerable children are taken care of. I just didn't know, like, what you thought of his remark about the monitors in specific. Well, clearly Abbott has a lot on his plate right now in the press conference where he was asked about that question, to be totally fair, was about coronavirus. Um, he said he mm-hmm. hadn't had a chance to read the report. It is true that the monitors are being paid. I think that their rate is something like $400 an hour. It's a massive amount of work that they're doing. And it seems almost certain that um, that financial burden is going to land on the state because the judge has ruled over and over again that Texas has has lost this case. And typically kind of attorney's fees and other costs end up with the losing party. Um, Abbott pointed also to some of the reforms I mentioned that were made in 2017. And I think he said something along the lines of, um, you know, if there are continued problems, then we'll address those. So I guess it kind of remains to be seen. Will this turn out to be a legislative priority in 2021? Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen. You know, we can talk about whether this is a goal for the state or not, but I mean, does it matter anymore? This has been over a decade where this has been a problem. You know, I mean, there, there's this is, you know, really this whole century, the the foster care system in this state has been a mess. There have been reports after reports after reports from state panels, from, you know, in, independent oversight, from the courts and everything like this. Every year or two, we get this long thing about how children are dying, children that the state is supposed to be taking care of are dying, are being sexually abused, are being physically abused. And this just continues to happen in this state. And, you know, I mean, I think this is something I I recognize there's a lot to be upset about right now, a lot to be concerned about in the world, the coronavirus, what's happening with, you know, um, these George Floyd protests and everything like this. But this is something that I think needs attention, needs of, of the people of this state, of the politicians of this state, that this kind of outrage has continued and has been allowed to persist for a very long time. And no matter what is happening in the courts, it's not being fixed. And, you know, uh, Emma's story yesterday was just another in a long list of grim reminders of that. Yeah, I mean, I- I'm trying to imagine how this remains acceptable to anyone in charge of running the state, right? Like, this is a place where leaders talk about not overstepping when it comes to government mandates. But there are two ways in which the state exercises its power over individuals in more extreme ways. And to me, that's through the criminal justice system and the foster care system, where you are taking children into, you're turning them into wards of the state, right? But this has been going on for nearly a decade, really much longer, because that's just the start of the litigation. And we often talk about how long it takes to address issues and wrongs in the state. But, you know, someone who was a child when this lawsuit started could be aging out of the system at this point, And that's if they survived. And yet, you know, given that this is the latest in sort of a long 
line of reports and and studies of this sort, like you point out, Matthew, I unless I've missed them, it seems like so far it's been a somewhat muted response from state leaders on this. Yeah, I reached out yesterday to the attorney general's office. They're obviously representing the state agencies implicated in the case, and they declined to comment on the pending litigation. Um, reached out to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and to House Speaker Dennis Bonin, and neither of them responded. We did hear those kind of brief comments from uh, Governor Abbott at his press conference. But it hasn't been, I mean, as we point out, there is a lot in the news right now, but I, I don't think we've seen kind of a, a major push from state officials since the release yesterday. All right. Well, the last thing we're going to talk about is a lot less grim than the last two subjects. Uh, The Supreme Court this week ruled that federal civil rights law protects workers from being discriminated against by employers on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Nothing like a pandemic to somehow make a momentous decision like this feel like it's just part of the news cycle. But this really is a major ruling for gay and transgender people living in a state like Texas without protections of the sort. Emma, I'm going to go back to you to tell us about this, this court's ruling and kind of the path forward for that some folks are hoping for, at least. Yeah, so until Monday in Texas, as in dozens of states, uh, it was legal. There was no explicit ban on firing an employee for being gay, for being transgender. And so this is a major, major step forward for LGBTQ people in the workplace. Um, What advocates are saying in Texas is LGBTQ people have to exist outside the workplace, right? And so the fight for them and the fight at the Texas Capitol next year um, during the legislative session moves to other areas. The push has always been for a comprehensive non-discrimination law. So that would say not only can you not fire someone for being gay, you can't deny someone housing because she's transgender. You know, you can't discriminate them against them in public spaces. You can't forbid them from entering your restaurant based on sexual orientation or gender identity. So that has always been an uphill battle in um, Republican-dominated Texas. I think that the new LGBTQ caucus in the Texas House, which was formed last year, feels like they kind of have some wind at their back with this ruling, but um, it remains an, an uphill battle for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think thinking about the road from the bathroom bill in 2017 to getting more expansive protections through the Texas legislature, I I can't even imagine what that road looks like, particularly when you think about the Texas Senate as a particularly large roadblock there. You know, I, I think in some ways it, it seems like the possibility of policy proposals not being dead on arrival anymore could maybe seem like progress for for those who are working to enact them. And I think about, you know, that bill from last session where some House Republicans were actually working to protect local non-discrimination ordinances. But, I mean, given the legislature's track record on this and the Texas Senate, it just seems like, I mean, it feels like uphill battle doesn't even quite capture it. I remember covering this in the 2019 session, um, LGBTQ lawmakers and their allies were really excited about the progress they had made. And I was sort of stunned by how small that progress looked, right? It, it looked like uh, Celia Israel's bill banning conversion therapy finders, which she has filed, I believe, since she was elected to the legislature, finally getting a committee hearing. It was considered by a small panel of lawmakers for maybe half an hour. It didn't go anywhere. Um, it was never called up for a vote. 
But to her, that was major progress because that was the furthest she had been able to push that bill in so many years. And there were similar things on um, a bill that would have added, you know, crimes against LGBTQ Texans to the state's hate crimes law. Other other kind of um, bills that would have incrementally moved the ball forward towards equality. And um, given how small those measures, you know, given how little progress they made in 2019, it's hard to imagine uh, kind of this full not comprehensive non-discrimination law getting all the way to the governor's desk next year. But that's that's certainly what um, advocates are hoping for. Do you feel like the ruling yesterday, in addition to being a significant step, you know, for workplace discrimination kind of moves the playing field for people who want to see changes in Texas? You know, um, now, you know, this this specifically pertain to workforce discrimination, but now we've got a, um, a precedent from the Supreme Court saying the Civil Rights Act applies to this. I mean, could you not see those victories happening in the Supreme Court in other areas now too, you know, related to housing and some of the other things that, that these advocates are looking for? Yeah, absolutely. So without trying to get into too much legalese, basically what the Supreme Court said was that, quote, sex discrimination covers discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. If I'm discriminating against if I'm discriminating against a man for being married to a man, when I wouldn't discriminate against a man for being married to a woman, then that is sex-based discrimination. That's what the Supreme Court said. So you can see how that logic gets applied, not just in Title VII, which is a civil rights protection um, for people in the workforce, but across all laws, right? Across every housing discrimination protection that has the same language of um, prohibiting sex discrimination. So that won't be, in my understanding of how it works, that won't be kind of an overnight thing switch that gets flipped, but you can certainly see how as these cases in different spheres of public life make their way through the courts, um, we're going to theoretically be reaching similar precedents. Well, Emma, I love it when you speak legalese to me, but that is all the time <laughs> we have. That's all the time we have today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, Over the Ledge, WGU Texas, the University of Arizona, and Every Texan. On behalf of Emma, Shannon, and Matthew, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. You